1: That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon.
3: Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of murder, medical malpractice and assault that may be upsetting. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. How much do we know about the people we choose to spend our lives with? Long-married couples often report new revelations about their spouses, yet when we marry we promise to have and to hold them for richer or poorer in sickness and in health and until death do us part but for some spouses death doesn't come fast enough especially when a million dollar inheritance is a stake this is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast? Every year, thousands of medical students take the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to, do no harm. But a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath. They choose to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate those who decided to kill. We'll explore the specifics of how they operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, M.D., Hello everyone, I'm Dr.
2: Kipper, and I'm here to help Alistair by providing some medical insight into our case of Dr. Arthur Warren Waite.
3: You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other podcast shows for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Medical Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. In this episode, we're discussing dentist Arthur Warren Waite. In 1916, Waite committed two murders with an odd combination of arsenic, chloroform, and bacteria. His killing streak would have continued until he received his wife's entire family fortune, were it not for a telegram that kicked off an investigation into one of the strangest poisoning cases in New York's history. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. Arthur Warren Waite is thought to have been born in December of 1886 in Kent County, Michigan. His father was a fruit and vegetable wholesaler and with three boys to raise, the family's modest means were often stretched. In elementary school, young Waits was forced to deliver newspapers in the cold Michigan winters to help his family. But despite his poverty, Waite had a bright future. He was a promising student. In high school, he joined his school's literary society and became a star athlete. And upon graduating, Waite enrolled at the University of Michigan to study dentistry. There he quickly developed a reputation as a very charming man. It came in handy when he began lying, cheating and stealing. While at the University of Michigan, Waite stole money from his fraternity brothers, stashed away gold used in dental fillings from the university and cheated by passing off other students' work as his own. Though he was a scoundrel, his charm and winning smile won him plenty of female admirers, including Clara Peck. Waite met Clara at a dance in 1906 when he was 19 and she was 16. Clara instantly felt smitten, though they came from very different backgrounds. Clara had a far cosier upbringing. Her father was wealthy entrepreneur John Edward Peck, who ran a successful pharmacy business. She grew up in a mansion where she enjoyed tea served in fine china. After meeting at the dance, Clara and Waite ran into each other now and then at various social functions. According to Poisoning the Pecks of Grand Rapids author Tobin Book, Clara found Waite's charm alluring, and she was flattered by the attention of such a handsome man. She felt drawn to him, His drive to succeed reminded her of her father. As for Waite, he was only interested in the size of Clara's family fortune. Waite and Clara occasionally exchanged correspondence, even after Waite graduated from college and left the United States. He landed a cushy job at prestigious South African dental firm Wellman & Bridgman. Employees were required to pass a postgraduate course at the University of Glasgow, which normally took two years. Waite, however, falsified his paperwork and finished the postgraduate course in a mere two months. While working for the dental firm in South Africa, Waite earned a comfortable salary, which allowed him to invest in real estate. But that still wasn't enough for him. Leaning on his college experience, Waite stole dental gold from his employers. This time though, Waite's actions didn't go unnoticed and authorities were called to intervene. However, Waite fled South Africa before any action was taken against him. When Waite returned to the US in 1914, he set himself up in New York City, eager to earn enough money to live comfortably but working hard as a dentist held no appeal. Though Waite went around town telling people he owned a successful dental practice, in truth, he spent his days wasting his remaining funds from Africa by playing tennis and seducing showgirls. To further fund his carefree lifestyle, he needed an easy source of income. So he decided to go heiress hunting and set his sights on 25-year-old Clara Peck. She'd heard about Waite's return from South Africa and his dental practice in New York, and was also eager to meet again. So she sent Waite an invitation to a party hosted by her mother in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Waite pounced on the opportunity. Over the next year, Waite courted Clara Though he lied about being a successful dentist, he did regale her with exciting tales of the African continent, some of which were probably true. Clara was taken with weight, but turned down his marriage proposal months later. Both her father, John, and older brother, Percy, encouraged Clara to learn more about weight before agreeing to marry him. Clara's sickly mother, Hannah, however, urged her daughter to say yes. Hannah was completely charmed by Waite, whom she referred to as my little boy. This, of course, irritated her son, Percy. With Hannah's help, Waite convinced Clara to rethink the proposal, and she agreed to marry him. He originally wanted to wait until the spring of 1916, but Hannah persuaded them to marry in September 1915 out of fear she might not live until spring. Percy, meanwhile, urged Clara to reconsider. He'd heard some nasty rumors about Wait, rumors that he'd stolen from the University of Michigan, and rumors he'd attempted to seduce another woman by proposing to her while he was already engaged to Clara. Percy wanted Clara to marry her childhood sweetheart, a man named John Caulfield but Caulfield simply didn't have Waite's charm. Clara said she would marry Waite if it killed her. In September 1915, 28-year-old Arthur Waite and 26-year-old Clara Peck married. It may well have been the happiest day of Clara's life. Waite, meanwhile, was already planning on murdering her and her family for their fortune he quickly set his plan in motion pretending to be a research scientist in order to acquire a deadly weapon from local laboratories germ cultures on january 10 1916 just a few months after the wedding clara's mother visited the newlyweds at their luxurious seven-room apartment in manhattan that the Peck family helped pay for. As soon as Hannah arrived, Waite set his plan in motion. While accounts are hazy, it's most likely that he snuck deadly diphtheria, typhoid, and influenza cultures into Hannah's food. Once Hannah became ill, Waite finished the job by tricking her into taking an overdose of barbiturates Three weeks after arriving in New York, Hannah passed away. Her cause of death was listed on her death certificate as kidney failure, even without an autopsy being performed.
2: Kidney failure occurs when the kidneys work at less than 15% capacity and are unable to filter waste products from the blood. This reduction in function can lead to fluid retention, shortness of breath, nausea, and even coma. Kidney failure can be the result of infection caused by germs, which are bacterial or viral, and older people like Hannah are usually most vulnerable. Like all other known pathogens, the germs weight used have a tendency to invade specific bodily organs and tissues and creates inflammation, which can compromise and destroy affected structures. The tissue damage caused by these bacteria can be mild or acutely dangerous and definitely have the potential to cause renal failure if left untreated. When someone dies from an infection, a thorough autopsy can expose both to the naked eye and under the microscope, the details of their death. Infected organs, for example, may be swollen or have pus-filled abscesses. If these initial clues are present, specific germs can be identified through blood cultures and tissue testing in the laboratory. Had medical examiners been able to perform a post-mortem on Hannah Peck, they may have very well discovered foul
3: play. To ensure that no one took a closer look into Hannah's death, Waite used his charm to convince the Pecks that Hannah wanted a cremation. The family agreed without a second thought. With the first step of his plan complete, Waite turned his attention to his father-in-law, John Peck. Six weeks after Hannah's funeral, 72-year-old John Peck traveled to New York City to visit his daughter. While grieving together was the main reason for the visit, Peck didn't realize he'd ventured into the spider's web. One evening, After a drive in the cold air, Waite urged Clara and Peck to spray their nostrils and throats with an atomizer to keep pneumonia at bay. Unbeknownst to them, the atomizers contained the same germs Waite used to poison Hannah. However, the samples were no longer deadly. What Waite failed to
2: account for were the conditions these germs need in order to stay virulent. The virulence of a germ refers to how likely it is to infect someone, given its degree of exposure, route of entry, and how active or aggressive it is. Pathogens are extremely sensitive to their environments, and Waite's apartment didn't provide the controlled conditions necessary to keep these germs thriving. One variable that's crucial in maintaining virulence is temperature. Diphtheria and typhoid, for example, both require humidity and heat to optimize their infectivity. Many bacteria also require some amount of light, either direct sun or artificial light, to survive. Influenza, on the other hand, requires a cold environment to maintain its viral potency. If Waite had in fact kept these germs virulent, his atomizer would have been a very efficient way to infect Clara and John. His plan to commit murder with these infectious diseases was very devious and diabolical,
3: but his methods were definitely flawed. Since Waite's germs were no longer capable of killing the Pex, he turned to plan B, arsenic. One evening, Waite's maid stumbled upon her employer pouring something into the soup she'd prepared for Peck. Waite didn't panic. He calmly convinced the maid that it was medicine. Asking her to taste the soup, she agreed, unaware that it was now laced with arsenic. Thankfully, the spoonful wasn't enough to kill. John Peck, however, wasn't so fortunate. Peck first showed increased signs of illness after eating a bowl of ice cream. Later, a simple mug of eggnog made him deathly ill. Arsenic is a chemical
2: element usually found in combination with sulfur and other metals. Historically, arsenic was used as a hard-to-detect poison and was nicknamed the King of Poisons and the Poison of Kings. This is in part because of its tasteless and odorless quality, which makes it much easier to slip into someone's food or drink. It was also somewhat of a ubiquitous biological in the past and, despite its dangers, was found in lots of consumer home products. Long-term exposure to arsenic can be linked to things like diabetes, heart disease, and cancer. Acute poisoning leads to symptoms that include nausea, vomiting, sharp abdominal pain, diarrhea, irregular heart rhythms, and nervous system complications. A large enough dose of arsenic can ultimately cause death by hindering the body's production of ATP, which is a molecule responsible for delivering and storing chemical energy within cells. Without adequate ATP formation, the body cells can't be fueled properly and stop functioning, causing them to die. This is referred to as apoptosis, or cell death, and it eventually leads to organ failure and actual death. Going back to the symptoms, though, arsenic poisoning can be hard to detect without testing, which is another reason behind the chemical's reputation as a covert killer. The associated stomach reactions can sometimes mimic symptoms of bacterial infections and signs of food poisoning. There's also a similarity here with symptoms associated with heart attacks, including nausea, vomiting, abnormal heartbeat, and abdominal pain. Given all of this, determining arsenic poisoning as a cause of death can be murky in the absence of specific examinations.
3: While John Peck suffered, his close friend Dr. Cornell visited him at Waite's apartment. There, Cornell witnessed Waite give Peck what he claimed was a sedative. However, immediately after taking a sip, Peck groaned in agony. Without fully understanding what was wrong with Peck, Dr. Cornell trusted Waite's medical judgment. Unfortunately, that was a fatal error. The next day, Peck was dead. John Peck's death shook his family to the core. Despite his sudden passing, poisoning wasn't immediately apparent or suspected. The doctor who first examined Peck's body blamed heart disease based on his age and health, though no autopsy was performed. Like with her mother, Hannah Peck, Waite assured his grief-stricken wife that her father wished to be cremated. She didn't argue, she never did. A few days later, Waite and Clara boarded the Wolverine Express toward Grand Rapids, Michigan. With them on the train was John Peck's body in a coffin. As soon as they arrived in Grand Rapids, Waite intended to have the body cremated in hopes of covering up his crime. Waite must have felt supremely confident about getting away with murder. But a single telegram threatened to undo all of his nefarious work. Coming up, the investigation into the deaths of Hannah and John Peck begins
4: the internet what would we do without it
1: so much information so little time and yet with all the answers available online there still lie scores of deep dark spooky secrets
4: mysteries yet to be solved until now this isn't clickbait this is our exclusive new podcast internet urban legends i'm loey your evidence expert
1: And I'm Eleanor, the self-proclaimed skeptic. Together, we're the gruesome twosome, sleuths in search of the weirdest stories on the web.
4: Every Tuesday, we investigate the internet's creepiest conundrums, covering each conspiracy theory and combing through every clue to separate hoax from haunt. Whether it's the video sure to make you lose your appetite, blank room soup, or every kid's worst nightmare, the terrifying truth behind Disney's deaths,
1: or every parent's worst nightmare, social media's Momo Challenge.
4: Each episode of Internet Urban Legends is chock full of disturbing details which are either truly demented or ripe for debunking.
1: And no matter our conclusion, we're sure to be left scared half to death. So won't you join us?
4: Follow our new Spotify original from Parcast, Internet Urban Legends. Listen free and exclusively on Spotify.
3: Now, back to the story. Shortly after Clara Peck married dentist Arthur Warren Waite in 1915, both of her parents died at her new husband's hands. 29-year-old Waite attempted to sicken both the Pecks with deadly diseases so the murders would look natural and felt confident he'd get away with them. However, one of the mourners unexpectedly stumbled upon the trail. When John Peck's friend, Dr. Jacob Cornell, went to Waite's home to pay his respects, he found Waite's attitude strange and aloof. It reminded him of an incident he'd set aside, so Dr. Cornell shared his observations with his niece, Elizabeth Hardwick. Not long after Hannah Peck's passing, Cornell's nephew ran into Waite at the restaurant in the Plaza Hotel. The nephew stumbled upon Waite having lunch with an attractive woman who wasn't his wife. Waite nervously explained that she was his nurse and that they had just performed a complex dental operation. The nephew found the whole thing so odd that he related the incident to his uncle, Dr. Cornell. When Dr. Cornell mentioned all of this to his niece Elizabeth, she suspected that something was wrong. And she took matters into her own hands. Elizabeth decided to alert Clara's brother, Percy, before Waite arrived in Grand Rapids to cremate John Peck's body. She hurried to New York's Grand Central Station and found a Western Union telegraph operator. Elizabeth dashed off a message which read, To Mr. and Mrs. Percy Peck. Suspicion aroused. Demand autopsy do not reveal telegram. She signed it with a pseudonym, K. Adams. The name referred to Catherine Adams, the victim in a notorious 1898 New York poisoning case. Thankfully, the telegram arrived in Grand Rapids before Waite. Percy may not have thought Waite capable of murder, but the sudden death of both his parents under Waite's care within months of him joining the family, was too convenient to ignore. After reading the message, Percy quickly arranged for an autopsy. When Waite stepped off the train in Grand Rapids on March 13th, Percy confronted him. Without revealing his intentions, Percy demanded that Waite hand over his father's body. Waite's usual grinning morphed into a glare as he had no choice but to relent. Percy then hurried his father's body to the mortuary and called Dr. Perry Schertz, his family's physician. After hearing about the surrounding circumstances, the physician agreed to perform the autopsy with the help of a friend, Dr. E.P. Billings. That evening, Dr. Schertz cut open John Peck's chest and removed his heart. Examining it, he detected no evidence of lesions. Peck didn't die of heart disease. Schertz then examined Peck's stomach. It had turned bright red and been squeezed into an hourglass shape. Turning the stomach inside out, Schertz found dark purple spots where the mucous membrane was eaten away. Within each spot, he saw a fine white powder that looked an awful lot like poison. Today, echocardiography
2: and myocardial perfusion imaging are used to detect signs of heart disease in suspected patients. Some typical findings here are an enlarged heart, aneurysms in the aorta, abnormal heart valves, and excessive amounts of plaque in the coronary arteries. The heart's muscles or ventricles may also appear compromised. This could manifest as discoloration, scarring, and other findings of damaged ventricular anatomy. Whatever the myriad signs may be, heart disease is easily identified in an autopsy. The contraction of Peck's stomach into an hourglass shape, though, is definitely interesting, Alistair. Possible causes of this distortion might be related to the havoc that arsenic wreaks on the gastrointestinal system. Arsenic is known to cause severe edema or swelling in the stomach. The swollen and bulging areas of PEC's intestines could very well have resulted from this accumulation of fluid. It could have even been that the arsenic damaged specific nerves in the stomach, which led to paralysis in the middle of this organ. This would have triggered the areas above and below the paralyzed portion of his gut to try to compensate by dilating and expanding in an attempt to regain normal gastric functioning. Despite this strange finding, Dr. Schurz's autopsy at least showed that Peck didn't die from a bad
3: heart. To find conclusive evidence of what killed Peck, they needed further examination. Schertz removed his stomach and intestines and sent them to the Dean of the University of Michigan's Medical School in Ann Arbor. While Dr. Schertz prepared the organs for travel, Percy ate dinner with Waite and Clara at the family mansion. Waite nervously checked his watch, expecting Peck's body to arrive for the at-home funeral. When the body never arrived, Waite visited the funeral home. There the mortician said the casket was sealed and refused to open it. Waite now understood that Percy had arranged a post-mortem and stormed off back to his hotel room. From there, he called Percy and tried to convince him of his father's last wishes, to be cremated, but Percy refused to budge. After hanging up, Percy hired a guard to watch over his father's corpse to ensure that no one tried to steal it. That evening, Dr. Schertz took a train to Ann Arbor to deliver John Peck's organs. Upon handing over a jar containing Peck's stomach, Dean Vaughn held it up to the light and remarked, there's plenty of arsenic there. To confirm his hunch, Dr. Vaughan promised to examine the organs and send over the results as soon as they were ready. Peck's family held the funeral the next day, March 14, 1916. Clara was so distraught, she was unable to attend. Waite chose to stay with her, likely relieved at an excuse to avoid the funeral. At the ceremony, Percy approached Reverend Wishart a longtime friend of the family. He told Wishart about the possible poisoning, then slipped him the cryptic telegram that had set the whole thing into motion. Reverend Wishart promised to do everything in his power to help uncover the truth. The morning after the funeral, the Reverend and Dr. Schertz teamed up and traveled to New York to launch their investigation. First, they interviewed the undertakers who had embalmed Peck's body. They noted that Waite seemed unusually eager to get the body embalmed. He also said it was odd that Peck's body was still limp hours after the embalming. They mentioned rigor mortis normally set in by then, unless some other chemical in the body counteracted the embalming fluids. Rigor mortis is a natural stage of death that results in the
2: body's muscles tightening up. Poisoning by arsenic does delay the onset of rigor mortis, and this is because arsenic inhibits the production of ATP, a source of energy that allows muscles to relax. In response to this rapid degradation of ATP from the arsenic, the body's muscle cells compensate by releasing glycogen, which is a sugar-storing product. Since glucose is a primary source of fuel for all the cells in the body, it serves as an alternative energy source to help the muscles relax in the absence of the depleted ATP. In this way, it makes sense that Peck's body hadn't become stiff and rigid by this point, since the presence of this alternative energy source allowed some relaxation of the muscles. This lagging rigor mortis response definitely confirmed the likelihood of a poisonous substance like arsenic in Peck's body.
3: After they met with the undertaker, Shirts and Wishart traveled to New Jersey to visit Peck's close friend, Dr. Cornell. Cornell described seeing Waite give Peck medicine, which caused him to groan in pain. Alarm bells blared. But while the investigators were getting closer to the truth, the family had business to attend to. On March 16th, two days after the funeral, John Peck's family gathered to hear the will read. Peck's million-dollar fortune was split down the middle, with each child receiving the equivalent of about $12 million today. At the reading, Clara appeared disheveled, apparently overcome with grief. According to Percy, once the reading concluded, Waite approached him and said, The deaths of your father and mother have been just as big a blow to me as they have been to you, and they have been even a bigger blow to Clara. I hate to think of such things, but I am afraid Clara has not long to live. Ever since my marriage to Clara, it has been death after death. Where will it strike next? Percy said nothing in response, though he certainly feared for his sister's life. A few minutes later, Waite chatted with Percy's wife, Ella, and apparently told her, I am afraid this is telling on Percy. I have been watching him the last few days, and I can see certain symptoms in him that were so evident in his father's last sickness. I don't believe he will live six months. As soon as Waite and Clara returned to their hotel room, Waite told Clara that he wanted to take good care of her, he said he was going to make his will so that if he died, everything would go to her. He urged her to do the same. She was hesitant to agree, though she ultimately sat down then and there to write out a will on the hotel stationery. When she was done, she handed the will to Wait, who appeared upset as he read it. She had bequeathed some $40,000 to charity Wait. crumpled up the will and told her to write another version one where she only gave away $20,000 to charity and left everything else to him. Overcome with grief she obeyed. Clara had no clue she'd just signed away the last protection keeping her safe from her husband's murder plot. Coming up the truth of the Peck's bizarre murders is uncovered. Now, back to the story. By March of 1916, dentist Arthur Waite had murdered his mother and father-in-law in in hopes of inheriting their money. Now, all that stood between the 29-year-old and a half-million-dollar fortune was his wife, Clara Peck Waite. And Clara had just written a will with Waite, as the main beneficiary but Arthur didn't know that he'd aroused suspicion on march 17th the day after clara wrote her will reverend wishart contacted new york private detective raymond schindler after hearing the details of the case schindler said he wasn't convinced of Waite's guilt but agreed to help get to the bottom of things Schindler wired Clara's brother, Percy, and the two decided that they had to keep Clara in Grand Rapids for her safety. Percy convinced Clara that she couldn't go back to New York with Waite just yet because she had to sign various papers before receiving her inheritance. Waite didn't bat an eye when he heard Clara needed to stay to handle her inheritance. He was too concerned about getting the money squared away. so he returned to New York on his own. Percy breathed a sigh of relief. For now, Clara was safe. Meanwhile, Detective Schindler snooped around New York and discovered something remarkable. Waite wasn't licensed to practice dentistry in the state. Further, he found that Waite had a reputation of spending lavishly at local bars and restaurants, frequently accompanied by showgirls. After this revelation, Schindler felt that Waite was probably responsible for the deaths of the PECs and contacted Judge Edward Swan. Judge Swan, Dr. Schertz and Detective Schindler soon met. Schertz had just received a telegram from Dr. Vaughan in Ann Arbor. The telegram contained a single word. Arsenic. The judge acknowledged that it didn't look good for Wait, but said the evidence against him was still only circumstantial. To nail weight, the group needed proof. While Peck's autopsy had shown arsenic in his stomach, it was still conceivable that the element was used during the embalming process. Arsenic was historically used as an embalming agent. While it was no longer legal in New York, some undertakers still used it anyway. So, a second autopsy would be needed. They said if arsenic was found in Peck's brain, that would be proof that he'd been poisoned. When arsenic enters a body, it ravages the
2: brain's ability to function by interrupting the communicating activity of its neurons. All forms of arsenic have been shown to build up throughout the brain, but they mostly target the cerebellum and the brainstem. Much of the associated neurotoxicity involved isn't well understood, but it's thought to be the result of arsenic's toxic metabolites that inactivate DNA synthesis and its repairing mechanisms we do know that death requires a high concentration of arsenic in the brain and this is useful for making this diagnosis in an autopsy. So arsenic in a dead person's brain tissue alone doesn't provide definitive proof of poisoning because environmental sources could create low-grade levels that are sub-lethal. One example here is arsenic-contaminated drinking water, which has been a long-standing global problem, especially in South Asia. In order to screen for deadly versus non-lethal amounts of arsenic in the brain, toxicologists and pathologists examine the brain's tissues. Once again, abnormally high levels can definitely suggest poisoning, while a mild presence of the poison usually implicates some less sinister environmental factor. In John Peck's case, it would be safe to assume that an autopsy revealing a large accumulation of arsenic in his brain indicated foul play.
3: But to find the arsenic, they'd have to retrieve John Peck's body from the family crypt. A controversial move. While Judge Swan deliberated about ordering the body's retrieval, the small investigative group traveled to Waite's apartment. They arrived at 8 a.m. on March 18th. There, they convinced Waite's superintendent to let them into his apartment. They had barely an hour to dig up dirt on Waite before his train arrived at Grand Central Station. Inside the apartment, Schertz found glass slides labeled typhoid, as well as medical books with pages on arsenic and other poisons bookmarked. In Waite's bedroom, Schindler picked up a framed photograph of the couple and discovered a small packet of cocaine on the back. With evidence in hand, the group left and split up. Schindler and Wishart dashed over to Grand Central Station to trail Waite when his train came in at 9am. They easily spotted Waite and eavesdropped on him as he made a phone call to the Plaza Hotel, room 1105. They had their next lead and soon learned that room 1105 was occupied by Dr. and Mrs. A.W. Walters. A chat with the hotel clerk confirmed that A.W. Walters was Arthur Warren Waite's pseudonym. The sleuths figured the Mrs. was the so-called nurse Waite had been caught lunching with. Afterward, Reverend Wishart visited Waite's brother Frank while pretending to be an officer from the health department. He convinced Frank to put him in touch with Waite. Frank picked up the telephone and dialed his brother. Fooled by the ruse, Waite made a startling confession. He'd never practiced dentistry in New York. When he was supposed to be seeing patients during the day, he was instead at the Plaza Hotel. Still, after the phone call, Waite felt something was up. So he started covering his tracks. On March 20th, he arranged a meeting with John Peck's undertaker, Eugene Kane. Waite explained that he was having trouble with Peck's family and mentioned that the district attorney might request a sample of the embalming fluid. Waite said he needed the sample to contain arsenic and if Kane ended up on a witness stand, he needed to say that arsenic was used in the embalming fluid. Before Kane responded, Waite shoved $9,300 into his pocket and ran off wait was right to worry. On the night of Tuesday, March 21st, a team of New York City investigators assembled by Judge Swan arrived in Grand Rapids. There, they decided to go forward with the retrieval and second autopsy of John Peck. If they found traces of arsenic in his brain, it would prove that the poison hadn't been introduced during the embalming process. As dawn broke the next day, they took possession of John Peck's body and removed his brain for examination. Meanwhile, Swan tasked investigators with looking into Waite's past. They soon uncovered his history of lying, cheating, and stealing. With the wealth of information, authorities were convinced that Waite had married Clara intending to murder her and her family and steal their money. Investigators also interviewed Clara. She told them that on more than one occasion, she had seen Waite put what appeared to be penny-sized tablets into her father's drinks. Clara also mentioned that before her mother died, her pupils were dilated. She didn't know it, but this was a typical reaction to cocaine. It's not clear what Arthur Waite hoped to accomplish by secretly feeding Hannah Peck cocaine. Perhaps he hoped it would further weaken her already ailing heart. In any case, it's nearly impossible to say if it had a significant factor in her untimely demise. While investigators scratched their heads over why Waite had fed Hannah cocaine, Dr. Vaughan reached a conclusion regarding Mr. Peck's death. The second autopsy showed that John Peck did indeed have arsenic in his brain. To them, this meant there was no question. Waite poisoned Peck. Swan ordered Waite's arrest. On March 23rd, detectives rushed to his New York apartment. There, they found Waite in an altered state. He'd swallowed a fistful of sleeping pills. Authorities called for a doctor who managed to keep Waite alive by pumping his stomach. Within hours, Waite's sensational story soon leaked to the press and made national headlines. As soon as Waite's parents heard, they bought train tickets to New York. Before they left, Clara gave them a note that read, in part, Father, Tell my darling husband that I love him with all my heart. Tell him I do not believe one word of all that has been said about him. Say to him that no matter what happens, I shall always be his loving wife. As Clara disavowed the charges, investigators dug up even more dirt on weight. They opened Waite's safe deposit box and found a receipt for the $9,300 Waite used to bribe Eugene Kane, love letters exchanged with Broadway dancers, and papers detailing the acquisition of deadly bacteria. They learned Wade had purchased germ samples from local laboratories while passing himself off as a research scientist. At about the same time, investigators tracked down the pharmacy where Waite purchased the arsenic. The pharmacist claimed that Waite bought the arsenic to kill a sick cat. Meanwhile, back at his apartment, Waite came out of his pill-induced stupor. He felt feeble, cold, and looked like a corpse himself. A far cry from the grinning, handsome man that had seduced an heiress and fooled many others. When investigators confronted Waite with the receipt for the arsenic, Waite explained that John Peck had become so despondent over the death of his wife that he wanted to kill himself. He had asked Waite to get him some poison. As the day dragged on with no further information, most of the investigators left the room, leaving private investigator Schindler alone with Waite. Waite reiterated his pure intentions, but then made a bold move. Waite asked Schindler to bribe his maid on his behalf to say that she'd seen Waite deliberately give Peck the package of arsenic as an act of mercy. Schindler couldn't believe what he heard. He produced a piece of paper and had Waite dictate the order to withdraw $1,000 for a bribe. Then Waite signed the order. Whether it was out of desperation, drug-addled confusion, sheer stupidity, or some combination thereof, Arthur Warren Waite signed his death warrant. Schindler quickly handed the evidence over to authorities. While they built their case, it leaked in the papers. After reading about Waite's attempt to bribe the maid and his affair at the Plaza Hotel, Clara experienced a change of heart. She was quoted as saying, I hate him. I want to see him punished. He took from me my mother and my father, and they say he planned to kill me. I believe them. It is terrible. Clara released a statement to the press, saying that she believed her husband was guilty, and then updated her will to ensure Waite wouldn't get any of her family's money As the story hit a fever pitch investigators continued building their case Following up on the papers obtained from Wait's safe deposit box they delved deeper into his deadly germ shopping spree They found that Wait purchased samples of typhoid, pneumonia, diphtheria and tuberculosis from a laboratory clerk at Cornell Medical School After a thorough search of Waite's apartment, investigators found 180 glass slides labelled with the names of other deadly germs. Today, far greater precautions are taken to ensure no
2: one off the street can easily access deadly germ samples. The studies regarding these pathogens take place in highly secured laboratories, where microbiologists and virologists meticulously study them in order to identify potential treatments. Unlike in Waits time, stealing from these laboratories nowadays would be nearly impossible. Today, laboratories are equipped with electronic access control systems, securely locked doors, human guards, and strict computer-based and physical logging systems. There's also usually video surveillance to add in an extra level of protection. Waite was able to get away with such a devious plan back then because there was intrinsic trust in the system, but things are definitely different now.
3: Waite's exploitation of the university system was just the tip of the iceberg. The evidence against him was overwhelming. Even his family was convinced of his guilt. The best they hoped for was a plea bargain and a reduced charge of second-degree murder, which might keep him out of the electric chair. But that would require Waite's confession. As soon as he had been strong enough, Swan ordered Waite moved to Bellevue Hospital. On March 28th, Waite's brother Frank visited him at the hospital and urged him to confess, if only to stave off the death penalty. Waite confessed to Frank that he purchased the arsenic with the intent to poison John Peck. But he grew frustrated at its equally slow pace and said he'd use the chloroform-soaked rag and a pillow to smother Peck. A combination
2: of Wade's lack of knowledge, overconfidence, and impatience led to his downfall. It's possible that Wade could have gotten away with his crime if he'd smothered Peck with a chloroform-soaked rag, but it's definitely not a guarantee. When inhaled, chloroform has a toxic effect on the lungs, causing the tissue to become noticeably inflamed and irritated. There are also sometimes visible indicators of smothering. These could include a broken nose or bruising around the nose and mouth from the pressure applied needed to smother someone to death. The victim may also have bloodshot eyes, which can precede death from a loss of oxygen. There can even be clues from the residual fibers left from the cloth that was pressed and held against the victim's face. Another sign is the presence of petechial hemorrhages, or purple-reddish spots that may appear on the neck, eyes, face, or lungs. These spots come from the high intravascular pressure associated with oxygen deprivation. Also, hemoglobin in red blood cells turns from red to blue when it loses oxygen, and this causes a deep, dark discoloration of the skin, turning it blue, black, or purple. This process is called cyanosis. They're also able to check for elevated carbon dioxide levels in the blood, which is another associated clue. Today, medical examiners look for all these markers to further investigate if someone was smothered.
3: In addition to admitting to the murder of John Peck, Waite conceded that he also killed Mrs. Hannah Peck. Two days later a grand jury indicted Waite on two counts, one for the murder of John Peck and the other for using a deadly poison. His lawyer broke the news to Waite, then recommended they plead insanity. Waite snapped back, I am just as sane as you are, then said he wasn't afraid of the electric chair. Within less than a week, Clara filed for divorce. On May 22, 1916, Arthur Warren Waite's trial began. When called to the witness stand, Waite explained his crimes in great detail, frequently grinning. One reporter remarked that he acted more like a comedian playing a room than a man fighting for his life. No one was charmed anymore. Five days later, after 83 minutes of deliberation, which included a break for lunch, the jury reached its verdict. They found Waite guilty on both counts. Waite appeared unmoved by the verdict. He left the courtroom still smiling, though a bit paler. Nearly one year later, on May 24, 1917, Authorities executed wait by electric chair at Sing Sing prison. Those in attendance said the 30-year-old died with a faint smile on his lips.
2: Arthur Waite's murder of John and Hannah Peck is one of the strangest cases in New York's history. It's not often that a killer attempts to use pathogens like typhus, tuberculosis, and diphtheria as murder weapons. There's a strange contradiction in how careful he was in his attempts to make these killings look natural, while at the same time behaving so brazenly, even appearing thoughtless at times. His public rendezvous with women, blatant career fabrications, and attempts to involve an investigating detective to bribe his maid all seem at odds with his meticulous scheming around his murders. This situation with the bribe is particularly fascinating to me. He may have been severely under the influence or just reckless, but he might have also had a subconscious urge to confess. We'll never know for sure. Regardless, if Elizabeth Hardwick hadn't sent that telegram, Waite's crimes may have never been discovered and the rest of the Peck family might have found themselves similarly attacked. In
3: 1920, Clara finally married her childhood sweetheart, John Caulfield. He may not have been as handsome or as charming as Waite, but at least she knew who he was when she married him. If Clara's experience had taught her anything, It was that ignorance isn't always bliss. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders. And thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you, Alistair. For more information on Arthur Warren Waite, among the many sources we used, we found... Poisoning the Pecks of Grand Rapids, the scandalous 1916 murder plot by Tobin T. Book, to be extremely helpful. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast shows, like Medical Murders, for free from your phone, desktop or smart speaker. To stream Medical Murders on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Kristen Acevedo, Jonathan Cohen, Alexandra Trikvedotir, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Devin Hughes, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden.